Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization podcast. Today, I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests, guests that we've had on in the past, the wonderful Banafshi Kenush, the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Friends and or Foes, and Lawrence Rubin, Associate Professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and also the author of Islam in the Balance. Now, we're doing this very special episode of Sepad Pod to try and get to grips with events in the Gulf at present, the rising tensions between Iran and the United States, the role of Saudi Arabia and all of this. And I thought that it would be a wonderful opportunity to talk to Banafshe and, and Larry about their work and, and to get their take on what is an increasingly precarious situation. So both of you, thank you so much for joining us again. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Banafsha, I wonder if I can start with you to begin. Can you tell us a little bit about about your understanding of the roots of this crisis? Why has it come about and why has it come about now? Well, as we know, uh, President Trump has uh, taken away a series of uh, sanctions exemptions that, had they stayed in place, would have allowed Iran to continue to trade and do business and specifically export some oil and continue a level of nuclear cooperation with countries like Russia and China um, under the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement. With those exemptions taken away, Iran could face the prospect of near zero level oil exports, although it will try to challenge that, uh, of course. Um, And it will be able to continue some nuclear cooperation with Russia, Oman, et cetera, again, under the JCPOA, but its hands will be significantly tied down. Iran has said in the past that if these developments turn against Iran, the region will not have an easy time coping with it either. And uh, as you know, there has been an escalation of conflict in the Persian Gulf um, following the attacks on the oil tankers, including two Saudi oil tankers and a drone attack on a major Saudi pipeline. Um, And they have been blamed on Iran's proxies. Iran is not taking responsibility for those attacks. However, This uh, unfortunate series of events points to Iran's desire to shake things up a little bit and sort of shift the political calculation with the U.S. uh, to see if it can um, get some of the things that it wants. Sure. And, And Larry, what's the view from Washington then, do you think? Uh, Sorry. Yes. um, Well, I think there's a a kind of a a couple of uh, different views. There's there's sort of the one that um, I won't call it so much the critics or or those who are in one camp kind of extremely concerned um, and sometimes for political motivations uh, on the opposition or Democratic side saying, oh, we're all in this, this incredible fast march to war, and then the other, another side saying, no, this is the you know more of the extreme policy. The right uh, side saying, this is it. This is the right way. We need to stand stand strong. And and there's also some somewhat of a, a couple of views in the middle 
um, we'll say, of saying more um, from a, uh, we'll say, a, a narrative trying to defend the strategic aspect of the of the administration's policies of saying this is a, yes, it's a strong show of force. Um, there, there may be divisions within the administration between a uh, understood to be a Bolton type of camp of uh, much more ready to intervene, but Trump seems to be to some extent a uh, not really have that view and might be a restraining force. And in the end, it could work out to to kind of um, bolster that strategic message of and and pushing the Iranians to whatever negotiating table that they seem to have. And then the other side, um, going back to a more nuanced on the other side of saying that's all great, but we've also got this. Um, this risk of escalation on both sides, and that's why we need to be concerned. Um, I think pro uh, probably from more from my perspective, there's seems to be those two views uh, on each side in the middle probably are, are somewhat closer to to the reality of the situation and somewhere um, somewhere there. Um, I. I don't think it's as, um, you know, you see the leaked reports that way of the number of troops and so forth. I think there's um, a lot that kind of goes on into the process of of coming up with these contingency plans. And there can be a lot that's overblown and reasons to have that stuff made public and um, kind of the strategic effects of that. And, and the other side is the opposition within the United States, um, the Democrats in particular, would also have reason to say, here, here's another reason um, we should be pushing back at this. We need to mobilize. Um, we need to mobilize more opposition to the administration. But then there are those that say, and the real risks are es escalation. And that's where I think, um, I think that's where a lot of people should be paying attention. And Benafsha also uh, mentioned how, uh, even uh, in addition on the Iranian side, there are some some um, moves being made that would. Uh, that would try to shake up the strategic landscape a little bit because they feel under pressure. And I think on that side, as well as what the United States is um, potentially trying to do, can cause these cause a situation for getting a getting some type of um, escalation or war that you that no one really intends. Yeah, I, I've got so many questions that that have come out of of, of both your responses, but also the the events. And Benafshe, I, I if I may direct this to you, we know that that the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA over a year ago now. And you're talking about Iran trying to to do some some moves to try and shake up things. Do do these moves have their have their roots? Uh, prior to the U.S. withdrawal, are they something that we've seen gradually over the past year, or is it more of a response to uh, to Trump's recent rhetoric? I guess I'm, I'm trying to ascertain why is this happening now. Well, Iran has been very disappointed with the slow progress it has achieved and made with other partners since the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA. Uh, here I'm speaking of other partners to the JCPOA, including, you know, Britain, Germany, France, yeah. uh, and China. And in specific, it understands that it needs European support um, to set up financial uh, mechanisms to be able to do business with the rest of the world, including with Asia. So with the reimposition of sanctions carried out by President Trump's administration, Iran's hands are increasingly tied up and it recognizes that countries um, that it likes to call as some of its international partners are increasingly reluctant to work with Iran as a result of these sanctions. So the stakes are already extremely high for Iran.
Iran and creating a little bit of upheaval in the Persian Gulf region doesn't seem to Iran at this moment a humongous uh, uh, second upheaval, given uh, that it is mindful of uh, the terrible consequences it will have to go through internally if things don't shake up rapidly in its favor. Right. And I, again, there's there's a lot of, of real complexity at play. If I may just just add a, a slightly different view from the other side of the pond, there's a, a real sense of, of frustration in the UK and and amongst other European partners about the way that this is all unraveled. The UK in particular put a great deal of, of pressure on all sides to get this this deal signed. It was really quite pleased with the, the diplomatic efforts, and I think there's a great deal of frustration now that, that it's starting to unravel. And I think the UK and, and a number of other European partners find themselves increasingly caught between the US and Iran, particularly after they tried to implement this new uh, new currency mechanism that allowed people to trade with Iran and circumvent US sanctions. Larry, what, where does the US see Europe sitting in all of this? Uh, well, actually, I wanted to turn it back. I'm happy to answer that. I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit, um, talk a little bit about how if, if at all, the domestic uh, politics within Europe, as you know, uh, Britain's going through quite a tumultuous time uh, yeah. <laughs> having to do with the domestic initiative that has foreign policy implications and whether this or in Germany would um, uh, would have any of, uh, is there, or is it a broad consensus when it comes to um, uh, domestic politics on some of these issues? So I think, as you say, there's a great deal of frustration in the UK, but that is mostly concerning Brexit. And I guess a lot of that is echoed across the continent, concern about what um, what Britain is planning to do, what Mrs May is planning to do with regard to to the, the European Union and, and this withdrawal. Um, that's, that's clearly dominating. Now, there are questions about what's happening in the Gulf, what's happening with Iran and the US, but these are, are much, much less concentrated. And it's, I guess, similar to what's been happening in the region. Things have been bubbling away, but there hasn't really been the sustained focus on the region, given how existential Brexit seems to be, which is why I was I was curious about the, the view from Washington about Europe, because it seems to me that Iran is hoping that Europe can help it to, to get out of some of the economic pressures, but also as a, as a bit of leverage against the United States. Uh, yeah, and I think the other thing is that the, the views in terms of Europe is clearly if you divide it more in the political discourse camp of those who had favored the, uh, the deal and would want it to kind of the arrangements to remain intact um, even after the United States withdrawal um, would be, you know, those who are really rooting for Europeans to uphold it. Um, and uh, um, and then th- there are those, of course, that um, on that opposed it and would see harsher measures of saying, oh, the Europeans, all they want is, the, you know, the, all they want is good business in that way. And that's those are kind of the two big um, sure. uh, views or narratives that way. They're closer to it. They, I think I think in in both sides, they um, I'm not sure, particularly on the ones that would say that the Europeans just care about the, those business aspects. They they also, I think, um, under uh, don't necessarily um, see from the European perspective how this isn't, you've noticed a, uh, a threat that appears or a threat or sometimes a concern 
that is um, so important for Europeans the way it is for the United States and because the United States is just in a very different position globally and has different types of interests to um, considers to protect and so forth. Um, yeah. And I think on the uh, I, th I think the other side isn't really as relevant when it comes to those supporters and those opposition that way. Um, and there's also a lot that's kind of out of the United States' hands to the extent that unless it becomes U.S. policy of putting additional pressure on the um, on Europeans to do this, that but as far as the other aspects of, of saying how do you bolster the European position, that's just not um, that's just not taking shape at this point. Sure, and I think you're right about the importance of, of the financial side. European states certainly need the money. There's no doubt about that. We certainly need the money, but I think there's there's a more normative dimension having invested so much time and effort in the the diplomacy side of things. But actually, I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about the the Iranian decision to uh, to put pressure on the Europeans, please, and how that's gone down in Tehran and, and across Iran broadly? Well, um, quite interesting. Uh, I believe my voice is being echoed, but I'll keep on speaking uh, and not worry about that. I hope it's all right on your end. It's all good now. Thank you. Quite interestingly, Iran um, believes that it's giving the Europeans an opportunity here rather than taking something away from them by creating the, the, the concerns and the tensions that you and Larry have touched on. Um, Iran is basically signaling to the Europeans that now is the time to save the nuclear deal, that we know that you want it as much as we do. It is also telling the Europeans that it cannot allow uh, the Europeans to sacrifice Iran at the altar of their in larger and greater interests and understandably far more important interests with the United States. So as a result, uh, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, as we know, is currently touring uh, the Asian countries. He's gone to Russia, China, Japan, uh, Turkmenistan, um, even Japan, uh, and I think I mentioned Japan, just to give the message that Iran is beginning to see Asia as perhaps a better alternative for its longer-term security, both economic and political, than Europe, if Europe is going to be toothless in is asserting what it wants, uh, which is to keep the nuclear agreement going with Iran. Right. And I think that that's really interesting that, that Iran is thinking of, of maybe moving or pivoting east, um, in many ways echoing what Obama was was alleged to have done, the sort of the pivot away from uh, from the Middle East towards Asia. But alongside the, the European pressure or ultimatum or whatever we want to categorize it as, there's also been been the alleged threat to close the, the Strait of Hormuz, which has led to an escalation directly in the Gulf. Larry, can you tell us a little bit about, about why things have escalated the, the Saudi, Israeli, Emirati view on, on this? Because it seems to me that they've been um, directly affected in terms of tankers and, and pipelines, but also there seems to be quite a uh, quite a strong presence of advocates of of sort of violence and war particularly in the presses in Saudi Arabia and Israel yeah i'm not um, it's also kind of hard to, in in looking at this of seeing what's kind of in the press um, versus what are really who's really advocating what in a um, 
uh, in terms of a, a real government position that way. I think a, people, a lot of people, of course, made made a, um, paid attention to. I think it was in the Arab News um, about this, uh, the English language uh, publication that way, and maybe there was also something in Arabic about the favoring of really, I guess, harsh measures against the um, the Iranians. And, yeah, that was uh, in response to this, and. Um, and I think there's then there's a couple things here. One I think to, to note is that um, is it also uh, the I think they also with with regard going back to the Israelis that the, there may be of course an interest in in the the pressure against Iran of course, but there's also an understanding that this escalation may not be contained, and um, that's going to um, present different types of security challenges, clearly having to do with Hezbollah. Um, bringing in the whole region, I think that's what everyone uh, fears. Yeah. What I would, what I would say, uh, raising a point, a couple of things is number one, we're not 100 percent sure this relationship between of what happened there between the Houthis and the Iranians. Um, I don't think it's is is clear cut as saying the Iranians control the Houthis and they directed it. This is what the claims have been uh, that have been made. Um, yeah. And. Uh, and there seems to be other instances where the Houthis acted on their own and the Iranians go along. And Benafshe can probably elaborate a little bit more on this on this uh, relationship and what it kind of looks like. Um, and without getting into the history of it, I think that's an important element there. Um, and that being said, the other important thing to think about is is how some incident like this can cause this this regional conflagration. Um, and it may be that these small armed Drones that aren't that high, you know, they're not necessarily that high tech. Um, and I'm not, I haven't looked at any of this stuff to really tell exactly what was done of how much uh, needed to be passed on when it comes to this technology. And also, even if it was, the question is, is whether this was authorized or, or pushed um, by the Iranians. And also, um, uh, what this really says about, um, about maybe it could be a red line for how much you know how much one does help a proxy in that way if it's gonna if it's gonna lead to an escalation that's gonna hurt um, you know your own side so that's kind of one of the things I would, I would do the other one is that what we have a lot of trouble controlling and I, I didn't see in it this much as opposed to some of the other conflicts is that is the whole how do you how do you handle this disinformation aspect of this uh, escalation as well but sure, I'll just leave yeah. it to those comments and let you guys uh, hear your thoughts on this too yeah I think that's a really important point about the disinformation particularly in the the context of, of Trump and this quote-unquote fake news era and just before we go over to Banafshe I'll just uh, draw the listeners attention to previous sepad pods with the likes of Thomas Junot uh, and and Peter Salisbury who've talked explicitly about the relationship between Iran and the Houthis and, and given more contextual background to that. But Banafshe, can you just elaborate a bit on what Larry was, was saying there? Uh, of course. Um, if we look at the Persian Gulf, uh, Iran's um, choice of provocation there is interesting. It does tend to cause these provocations by discussing the Strait of Hormuz and the possibility of the strait becoming blocked to navigation every now and then. But this conversation that Iran has been uh, sort of throwing out there has been going on for the past 40 years, and the Strait of Hormuz has never been shut down, even at the height of the Iran-Iraq war. So it begs the question of whether 
hear Iran's uh, choice of wording about the strait as a provocation or an outright aggression. And I think that it really wants to avoid that outright aggression, um, as, as all parties around the Gulf want as well. And it seems that President Trump is also sort of uh, using um, words that suggest that despite rising tensions and outright aggression is still not a part that he's playing. Um, as we know, the recent incidents in the Persian Gulf have led to a significant price hike. I just went uh, to fill my uh, car yesterday and, you know, it was surprisingly far more expensive than what it was just even a few days ago. And this is not something that President Trump certainly wants. Yeah. Um, so this price hike uh, could be uh, a way Way of serving Iran's interests as well, in sort of uh, signaling again that it wants the change of events to to not be all about what the U.S. and its allies decide, but also to take into account. Iran's interests a little bit as well. I don't think Iran has any illusions about how much power it has here, but it does try to play its cards. So working with the Houthis, I agree with Larry, uh, it's not exactly a straightforward proxy relationship. There's an ideological undertone that's taken over the entire region that creates affinities between different parties that have grievances against one form or another against U.S policies and those of its allies, and then that creates a sort of a linkage between Iran and the Houthis. But ultimately, it is this ideological undertone that will be very hard for any party, the Europeans, the Americans, or the Asians to address. And that's where Iran's ultimate winning card is, if it wants to continue to bring pressure to sort of change the balance as it stands now a little bit more in its favor. So I guess the I mean, the main actor right on the front line of, of all of this tension is Saudi Arabia. And I, I wonder where where do you where do you see the Saudis fitting into all of this? What action do you think they might take? We know that uh, that they've had this long and fractious rivalry dating back decades. And I think between the three of us, we've got different understandings and different ways of characterizing the nature of that that rivalry. But I wonder if you could both tell me a little bit about where you see, what type of strategy you see the Saudis deploying here. Because obviously they are right on the front lines of it, but with a, a deep structural, in many ways, distrust of Iran. Yes, uh, if, if you like, I can go first. If Larry's fine with that, um, I was. I had the privilege of being in Saudi Arabia just recently, and you would be surprised uh, to know that um, I, a, a great number of the Saudis I spoke to were very keen to find ways of understanding how to have a level of engagement with the Iranians, be that with the Iranian people, be that through some level of communication, because the understanding, while large and wide in the region, is that it's not exactly clear where President Trump's policies are going either uh, with respect to the region and with respect to Iran. So um, the Saudis would prefer to err on the side of caution. Uh, and as a result, since these incidents in the Gulf and the pipeline attack, uh, they've been quite restrained in coming out and 
pointing fingers directly at Iran. Um, you know, Twitter may have said that, um, uh, you know, by the brother of the crown prince may have said, well, you know, Iran is really behind the Houthi attack. And uh, for, former foreign minister, Mr. Adil, has said something on his account. But, but, but be that as it may, on an official level, there's a significant degree of restraint both by the United Arab Emirates and by the Saudis with regards to the level of provocation that they they would want to see coming from Iran. So everybody's erring on the side of caution. Therefore, there's uh, some room to navigate here to yeah. understand how to de-escalate the tensions, if that can be done. Sure. Larry, is that, is that a position you, you agree with? <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, definitely, and, and I don't even say that it's a, a most a wait and see policy of what what's the United States going to do in its next step, um, and what could I mean, what could the Saudis do at, at this point that would do anything but if they were going to do something active beyond try, finding a de-escalation step, um, step um, waiting for the United States to follow follow its lead, um, and and hopefully that lead won't be too far off track of, of it. But I think that's fairly consistent with what they've what the Saudis have done in the past um, yeah. when any of these t- types of regional um, conflicts or crises emerge. Sure. Well, that's that's both of you mentioning possible de-escalation. So I wonder, given that we've taken up a great deal of time already, but perhaps you can you can both just briefly offer a, a possible de-escalation strategy, if indeed you you, you have one. I, mean, I don't want to speculate about what's going to happen next, but perhaps there are some some structural ways that that we can work towards de-escalation. So, uh, Banafshi, would you would you go first, please? Um, I think that um, the United States has to sort of figure out a way of um, shifting how it regards the Iranian challenge. Uh, You know, there's a little bit of game theory and chaos theory going in in the formulation, and Larry can point to that, and if I'm incorrect or not, um, going on even unconsciously or subconsciously in how the U.S. regards its enemies. And, you know, if we can kind of find a middle ground and move forward with that middle ground and understand that a battle that would be fought with Iran is not just a military one, but an ideological one across the region, then maybe we can take a deep breath on our end and decide what to do next that would be more steady moving forward. That would probably involve keeping the JCPOA and allowing a level of uh, trade and business to go on with Iran under U.S. supervision, global supervision, if that's what seems what Washington wants, that will then signal a degree of consistency in U.S. policy toward Iran to Iran's neighbors like the UAE and Saudi Arabia so that they have an opportunity to see how what they can do to keep tensions down. If these steps are not taken, then we can uh, anticipate a continued uh, sort of prolonged phase of, uh, of of gradual escalation of tensions. It may not lead to war, but it will take up a significant level of resource from all involved, and that wouldn't be an ideal scenario either. Sure. Thanks, Banafshay. Larry, do you have anything to add to that? Um, just, yeah, just briefly, I think that one of the, if it's, I mean, I think there's there's one would be a short-term kind of de-escalation, and that I think would just may occur rather than saying we're going to do X or Y and things are going to calm down. It may just kind of peter out. The excitement just kind of might 
might go away. That could, I, that could be a prediction, but I'm often wrong any prediction. So um, take that with a grain of salt. The other one is the broader. Um, if you if one believes that the real strategy in this administration is to push hard and then eventually find a way to talk to the Iranians, um, this is just one of those steps of saying, let's see how far we can kind of threaten this escalation um, and and show not only are we putting all this pressure on the Iranians, um, but we've also got these uh, these these threats that could that could be costly for everybody, and particularly perhaps more so than the Iranians. And then eventually they will they will talk. The, the problem and the challenge is, as many people have pointed out, is that the types of conditions the United States has set um, are such that the Iranians will likely un, will unlikely agree to. So it's it's unclear what those at least it's unclear to me what what um, those potential gains for the United States would be in talking to the Iranians if the demands that Pompeo's uh, 12 points have been, and many of them are basically, as we know, ceasing all this uh, and I'm going to paint a broad stroke with all this, the nuclear activities, um, the regional act, the regional um, act, activity in terms of responding terrorist groups and, and proxies and so forth. Um, and anything, as we've almost said, or many people have commented, short of regime change, it's the, a lot of this is very would be very hard for somebody for Iranians to accept. So therefore, um, what the what the administration would want short of that is um, uh, is at least not that, not that clear to me. But um, that seems to be one of the end goals if you if you believe that to be the real uh, administration strategy is by pushing so hard on some of these. Um, uh, in these crises and also uh, exerting this maximum pressure campaign. Um, and that's, uh, anyway, so that's where I would I would kind of see it in those short and longer, longer-term uh, visions. But I don't have any specific solutions that would seem to yeah. be um, uh, something that would that would still be consistent with, um, with what the administration has outlined as its goals. And I guess part of the reason for that is the the complexity of of the the current situation across the region. Not only we're we dealing with with state actors, but non-state actors with complex and not always similar causal relationships, as we've seen historically with Hezbollah, as we're seeing with the Houthis. Now, we're seeing a range of different networks, different actors that are that are conditioned by a range of different contexts and and that's what's making it all so complex and and so tense right now but we've taken up so much of your time banafshe larry thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us it's been really fascinating really worthwhile and i really appreciate you taking the time thank you it's always an honor thank you very much yes thank you thank you so much for having us and thank you for listening